In 2021, Talk About It Outdoors partnered with an industry-leading brand that has stamped its name on the outdoor industry. Cruiser Saddles in itself stands on perfection, and with every climb we make, we elevate ourselves above the rest. In addition to a support to our hunting journey, the men and women behind Cruiser believe in the same principles of life as us. Faith, family, and the blessings of being better as they go in every sit. If your desire to pursue your passions one step ahead of the rest, go ahead and get in the best. Check them out on all the socials or head over to their website at www.cruiser.com. That's C-R-U-Z-R.com. And tell them to talk about it outdoors, boys, and Chasing Weekends sent you their way. The journey of life has a unique way of being able to create tried and true friendships as we go. In forming those relationships, oftentimes good things come to follow. Talk About It Outdoors is proudly supported by Cal Hardy of Arrowhead Land Company. Cal is the leading broker over Georgia and is happy to assist you with finding the place where you can call home. With vast knowledge and an understanding of the ever-evolving real estate market and a unique old-school approach to everything he does, he exemplifies what it means to treat others like you'd want to be treated. Don't settle for being just another number in a phone. Choose Cal Hardy for all your land, home, and commercial real estate needs and become a part of his family. We sure are blessed to have him as a part of ours. Find him on Facebook, Instagram, or give him a call at 770-296-2163. Step back to the times when a feed store was more than just that, and the people inside smiled with friendly faces and provided a place for a talk on life, as well as all your essential farm, livestock, and pet needs. Cherokee Feed the Seed located in Ball Ground, Georgia, with an additional location in Gainesville, are the hometown supplier of all your cattle, equine, and pet needs, with the added addition of being able to keep your deer herd healthy with protein and minerals. They also carry an assortment of hunting blinds and gear, and you can rest easy knowing the people that support local ball clubs and children's sports are who your hard-earned money is going to. The people here greet you with a handshake and a smile, and Cherokee Feed and Seed give more than just a product. They give you a welcome that'll make you return time and time again. Stop in next time you're in the area and tell them you're part of the Talk About It Outdoors family. A few years back, when an overbearing and overgrown backyard became an eyesore, I looked for a solution to resolve. LRS Land Services created a stunning and complete transformation turnkey at an affordable price with their mulching services. Not limited to mulching, LRS can provide turnkey grading and clearing, maintenance, right-of-way clearing, and even development for any and all forestry needs. With an innovative outlook on what is best for your land and a completely different approach than others, LRS can transform your overgrown eyesore into a beautiful landscape of your dreams. Give them a call at 404-889-1105 or check their work out on Facebook at LRS Land Services. Logan and his team are ready to make your land brand new again. Building the foundation of your life starts at the base, and the stronger it is, the better. 
Talk About It Outdoors is proud of our strong partnership with United Concrete and Paving and the foundation of support they provide. Whether your new home being built needs concrete work or that driveway you're tired of beating all the bearings from your pickup needs a paving, Michael and his team can provide any residential or commercial project support you might need from the ground up. If you're tired of tripping over that unsettled patio slab or a future shop build needs a smooth start, United Concrete and Paving can get you going when you need it most. Give them a call at 404-831-3036 and make sure you tell them them TAI boys are where you heard it first. You ready, Nicholas? Let's do it. All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors live in the Wilson studio. Nick, Alex, Cody, Tyler, Caleb, and our little buddy Cadence hanging out on the backside of things as we're running through this 2022 turkey season like a full-fledged gobbler coming into that call. It's going to be a fun one tonight. I can't wait to introduce y'all to this gentleman that's coming on with us. He's a legend in the turkey hunting community, and I promise you he can tell a story like no other. Y'all pull up a chair and set a while. Nick, turkey season 2022 is winding down. I see the tear in your eyes, son. It's kind of kind of starting to sparkle a little more than I have seen it in the past. It might be down here in the southern states, son, but I might be getting back on a jet airplane. Shh. <laughs> don't tell nobody about that. Well, buddy, <laughs> it has been a lot of fun this year. Getting Actually, get out in the woods a little bit for myself and turkey hunt. Get to experience what these spring mornings is all about. I've hunted more this year than I ever have in the past, and I tell you, it's been a little... It might be a little fire lighting under my tail. I ain't quite cussing you as much for getting all these turkey hunting folks on this time of year, Emma. Oh, it's been good, man. It's been a great year, and uh, we've really enjoyed it. So, Georgia will probably be in a rearview mirror on this one, and up north will be in the, in the front windshield. <laughs> front windshield looking ahead. Well, as we go into this thing, tonight, you know, it's it's been a, a long time coming for us. We've heard this gentleman's name mentioned in a lot of respects, and, um, you know, I, I just want to go right into it because telling the story of him – it, it, I'll never do him justice, but I'm going to do my best to kind of introduce him here and, and spin it up because many, many moons ago down in Louisiana, a man was born, and I don't think at the time he had any idea the impact the wild turkey would have on his life, and I I can almost guarantee you he never fathomed what impact he would have on the wild turkey. Producing countless videos chasing the elusive lonebeards, being the lead man on the Truth About Springs series, volumes two through eight, and ultimately fulfilling his destiny as a master storyteller, tonight's guest would give even me a run for my money talking about it. In February of 2022, he was inducted into the NWTF Grand National Hall of Fame, and he's a leading advisor for Turkeys for Tomorrow. It is indeed an honor and privilege for us here at Talk About It Outdoors to welcome memories of the spring Arthur and legendary turkey hunter, Mr. Ron Jolly. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ron. It's uh, It's been a long time coming. Nick spoke very highly of you. We've had many, many turkey hunters from the community speak very highly of you. 
Uh, Mr. Jim Ronquist came on with us very early on in our show, and uh, when we got off the phone with him, he said, y'all have got to get Ron on because that joker could tell a story as good as anybody. And I just found out recently you were a published author, and I think I'll, I might pick up that book, Nick. I might do a little reading on that. It might fire me up on turkeys. Ron, um, <laughs> well, I have a Nick. I, mean, I, 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 I starstruck you there. I think I, think I, think we, I starstruck Nick there for a second. <laughs> Ron, I, just Wake for, up, Nick. just for everybody that I want everybody to understand that we're going to get into Ron's past history of hunting and all that, what he grew up doing. But he's also, like you said, um, what was your wording for advisor for the turkeys for tomorrow? A leading advisor. Yeah, and we'll get in at that at the end. And I know we've people's going to say, well, y'all have done had y'all had. Ron on, y'all had Dave and Ch- uh, Chase on the other day, but, you know, we're going to get into a little deeper talk on that at the end. But first and foremost, Ron, um, tell us how you got your start in the outdoors. I would offer a, a loving and very outdoor-oriented father. And uh, I grew up in northeast Louisiana, a place called Newelton in Tinsel Parish, and my dad was a turkey hunter. And from the time I was a little boy, before I could ever really even tag with him, he would take me to listen because he had poor hearing. And to go listen, it was about a 30-minute drive, launch a John boat, and then a 30- or 40-minute ride up the river or the bayou to get to a certain place where he thought there may be a turkey. And most of those days, there wasn't one. And on the days there were, it was a 30 or 40 minute ride back to the boat landing where my mother would be waiting to take me to school and he would go back to the turkey hunt. So that wasn't very fun. You've, you've seen talking about being young and we'll go back to you growing up, but you talking about you being young, you've seen a lot of changes in the outdoor for turkey hunting from you basically went from no turkeys to a good amount of turkeys back to a kind of a decline as we're as we're approaching 2023 here what where, well, where, where, where was, i'm sorry go ahead well absolutely i mean to, to tell you how much has changed when i finished college i knew three people who turkey hunted besides me and that was my dad and his two buddies his best friends in everyday life but they never the whole time I was growing up, they never talked about turkey hunting during turkey season because they were so secretive about what little bit they had and what they knew. And so it was it was taboo to talk about turkey hunting to anybody else because you didn't want to share that with anybody because there wasn't anything to really share. Now, after the season, they would all get together and have an adult beverage and a barbecue and they would swap tails and slap each other on the back and be best friends until the next April. When did you start seeing that increase in turkeys, Ron? Um, it coincided with the boom through the late 80s and the 90s and up to the peak in the early 2000s. It was just logical that the more turkeys there were, the more people wanted to hunt them, the more visible they were. But uh, I'll tell you a little tale. When um, I took the job at Primo's, I was 36 years old. I was 
farming with my dad. But I, I just love being around turkeys, and I figured out how to get close to them with a video camera, and I was videoing them on my own in the off season and trying to video hunt because it was just a cool thing to do. I could, I could go home and look at that after the season was over. And so when Wilbur offered me that job, I had a pretty sizable row crop farm, and my dad had retired, and I told him, I said, he, we'd lost my mother, and he was kind of lost, and I said, I've been offered a job, and if you'll manage my farm, I'll pay you what he pays me to do it until I can figure this out. And he says, you mean you're going to go tell everybody all I've taught you about hunting these turkeys? I said, yes, sir, I'll have to. And he says, well, I hope you've learned all you need to know from me. And you never turkey hunted with me again, ever. Oh, wow. Wow. he He was not bitter. He was not bitter, and he supported me. But he was still that old school that he could, he knew that, I don't know how he knew it, but he just knew that it, they were too fragile. I, I guess that would be the best word way to describe it the way he looked at it. Because he could vividly remember when there were like two gobblers in a 10-day season. That, that was all he could hear. So you never got to hunt with your dad again after that? I did not. Wow. And if you read, if you read Memories of Spring, um, the last chapter was called The Last Shot. And in all my travels and all the things I did at Primo's and Woodwise and all those places, I'd always send, send him the best shells and the best camo, the best calls and stuff that we had. And he, some of it he used, some of it he didn't. But uh, he always, he fell in love with Mossy Oak Bottomland. And he, I sent him a box of, I don't know if you guys remember, but when Winchester came out with those little black body uh, shells with the silver brass, instead of being brass covered, they were silver and they were copper plated shot. Those were the hottest thing around. So I sent him a box of 10. And uh, when he was, when he was leaving us, I called him. He was living in Texas with my sister. And my sister told me I needed to get out there. And so it took me a day or two. And when I got there, I, well, she gave him the phone. He says, you come to see me, bring your turkey hunting stuff. And it was in April. So I didn't. But when I got there and, and when he passed, I went into his room. And in a corner of that room was a, uh, his shot, his old model 870 that I'd bought him, and uh, Mossy Oak Bottomland camo was hanging on a barrel, and his vest and his cap, his boots were all sitting there like he was getting up to go hunting in the morning. And in the pocket of his vest were two of those shells, two of those 10 that I sent him. And the last shot was I killed a bird about. 10 days later here in Alabama with one of those shells. That just, I mean, it's mm. something I'll never, remember, I'll never forget. I guarantee you won't. Uh, wow, that's a, that's a testimony. Kinda, I'm kinda, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of speechless at that one. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us, Ron. That's, that's pretty special there. And as it, as it went, and, and I guess the thing that sticks out in my mind, the journeys that you've been on, 
I probably can't even imagine the, the amount of turkeys you've seen, but I would venture to say that more often than not, you think back to those times and, and learning that stuff in the woods with your dad when you're, when you're chasing the turkeys, right? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, the main thing he taught me because in, in those days in the late fifties and early sixties, there was hundreds of thousands of hardwood forests in that part of the world owned by two huge timber companies. And they were in hunting clubs. And the hunting clubs were big, you know, big hunting clubs. And all those vast expanses, there's very few roads. And so the bayous and the tributaries were the easy way to navigate a lot of that. So I think one of the things he really taught me was to, to navigate the woods and to be comfortable and, and you know, trust the skills that, that you learned along the way. He taught me to this day, I don't use a compass at night. I, I just, I use my iPhone now, but I don't have to. If it's a clear night, I can go back to my truck from a mile away just looking at the stalk. I mean, it's, it's uncanny, but I still can. But woodsmanship, that's, that's kind of what you're speaking to there. It, it's, it's lost in today's world. It absolutely is. And you know, you guys are turkey hunters. And you know, if you're a woodsman, if you know turkeys a little bit and how to get around and, and be comfortable, that's you got a giant leg up on a turkey because you're living, you're walking in his living quarters when you go in there. He, you know, that's where he lives. You're a visitor. Do you think, Ron, that with the advancements in technology, and I've asked this question before, that it's taken away from woodsmanship in, in ways that, future generations will suffer greatly in? That would be like answering, I like pasteurized milk. <laughs> <laughs> Which, hell yeah, it is. <laughs> there you go. I, well, and I knew it. Well, I knew what the answer would be. And and I think what... Well, I meant, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I, I, uh, I, th- I think in speaking ahead. with gentlemen that are, that are of your caliber of, of outdoorsmen, we, we've had, you know, turkey hunters we've had deer hunters the one word that comes back is stewardship more often than not that we try to invigorate as a as a passion for for us and through conversations with gentlemen such as yourself and and guys in the deer hunting world like don higgins we always hear the 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 disdain in your voice for technology and what it's causing future generations and and i want people that to be a a common echo in their mind that we've got to get back to woodsmanship or it's going to be lost forever. Um, I, I, that's a tough debate, guys. Man, it's, it's hard to land on one side of that or the other. Um, I think the people who are skilled woodsmen and are at ease in the woods and comfortable there, miss a lot of the true experience but you know the technology world has, has changed our whole world it's not just in hunting it's the way we travel the way we we bank the way we communicate everything now is there are ways to cheat with this technology absolutely i think um as as this thing continues to evolve i think that hunters, true turkey hunters, 
there's enough of us left who can set an example to, to start saying, you know what, guys? You can go kill that turkey, and you can go get your buddies to slap yourself on the back, but do you want to go hunt that turkey, and when you kill him, it's something you'll never forget? And that's what's missing. It, if it's too easy, it, you know, it's like, if you win the lottery, I'm sure you appreciate it, but do you think you appreciate that money like if you worked for it 20 years and earned it? Absolutely. So. Nope, absolutely not. Ron, let me. I'm gonna back up real quick to talking about the years that you grew up, where there were no turkeys to turkeys, and now we know in certain states there's a decline of them. Do you think there's there was something growing up that you saw a difference in helping the turkey population back then that we need to get better at now? No, I think uh, the turkeys were on their own back then. They were totally on their own. I think the work that's been done from, you know, the mid to late 70s up to now, it's, it's what really made the big boom that we all experienced. Because we're talking about now to then, guys, we still got tons more turkeys than they were here before all that started. And way more turkeys here than when I was a kid. So I, I, I can't by that that what they were doing then made a difference I think management and sound management practices and the development of the cannon net and all these there's technology you know, and the NWTF putting their shoulder to it and the state agencies recognizing that it's a problem and here's the key hunters bought in the people who pay for all that are guys like me and you who go buy a hunting license. And they made all that possible by the dollars they generated to the state agencies. And those dollars are eligible for matching funds through a deal called the Pittman-Robertson Act. So they get three-to-one matching dollars for every dollar they sell for a hunting license. So that's huge. That's what paid for it. Is that that's the whole that's the whole sorry that's the whole thing behind that Pittman Robertson Act, right? Just what you just said, or is there more detail in that, Ron? Well, some of our the reason I say that some of our listeners may not know what that is. Well, I encourage you to talk to your state agency or just to, to Google the Pittman Robertson Act. I think it was in like nineteen thirty-two or something that that was passed, and at that time, it was fear of extinction for not only turkeys, but deer and waterfowl and a lot of stuff. But the common person who bought into that is the guys like me and you bought in. And those dollars, they started seeing results. The agencies put it on the ground. The NWTF was formed in like 1978, I think. Something like that. And it grew and grew and grew, and interest just blew up. For a long time, the turkeys were able to able to stay ahead of the technology. And, you know, let me just say this. Of anything that ever hatches from an egg or gets birthed from a womb, 
the last thing I'd want to be is a wild turkey because the odds are stacked against them so bad. As a ground nesting bird, the vulnerabilities of being on the ground for two weeks with not true feathers and not being able to fly, all that. And everything loves a wild turkey to eat. So now you know why they're so paranoid and why they're so capable of avoiding us one-on-one. Um, you know, it's just, it's just hard. I think in the best of times, I think the biologists shoot for a, a, a three-pole survival rate is really good out of a clutch. And that's really hard to do. So you think about it, three out of average clutch of 10, that's only 30% survival rate on, on, in good times. And these have not been good times lately. Do you think, Ron, and I want to go back to, I guess, several years ago when you uh, when you first got into Alabama from Louisiana, I don't know what year that was, do you think that turkey hunting has, has it had an impact on people state to state as much as it has in, in the in the southeast like out west i know there's turkeys being introduced out there there's there's new uh new strains of turkeys or turkey hunting may not have been as popular in the west in the south where it was just a stone cold passion that people forged inside of them has it changed state to state at, that you've noticed through the years well there's more people pursuing them you know, on public and private land everywhere right and that's just the nature of more people learning about it. And I, mean, I call it just falling in love with, with turkeys. Cause put it this way, guys, if you go, you set out on a hill on a pretty clear April morning, I don't care where you are. A turkey gobbles 10 times and flies down and struts in front of you. If you don't fall in love with it, you need to go take a sabbatical somewhere because <laughs> you yeah. aren't paying attention. <laughs> That's the I truth. feel like I just got baptized, Dick, right there. Yeah. I think I did. Ron just baptized me. <laughs> just gave me a picture in my mind. Well, Ron, uh, what – go ahead. I'm sorry. It's just true. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. But I think what gets lost is there's a, there's a true chess game when you sit down to one and you call him up because you're going against his very nature. You know, the, the hen's supposed to go to him. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. And you, my dad always told me there's two places you can kill a turkey gobbler, boy. And that's when we didn't have any. He said, you can be sneaky enough to crawl up there and shoot him where he's standing, or you can go somewhere where he don't mind coming and call him there. And figuring that out where he don't mind coming is the woodsmanship, and that's the chess game that, that, that's perky hunting to me. When you decided to start sharing, 36 years old, you took a job where you would share everything that you had learned. How many sleepless nights did you have before you led up to that conversation with your dad? None. <laughs> Couldn't afford not to sleep, Dad. Get up four o'clock. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Like, that's, that's it. I like it. <laughs> like I said, he was not critical of me. He didn't criticize me. He didn't punish me. 
he just made his point. And sadly, you know, all these years later, I think he was probably right to an extent, but he was also wrong to an extent. If we had not had the boom that has come with all the license sales and, you know, all the equipment, you think about it, the, the, the matching dollars that come to the states are generated through equipment sales, guns, ammunition, calls, boots, anything. So there's a voluntary tax on all those hunting items that is collected by the federal government that goes into the fund. And I think the Fish and Wildlife Agency does a tally in as dollars raised by license sales, say in Alabama, and the they're, and they determined that they qualifies for these matching funds, and they put three dollars for every one. So the agencies couldn't exist without that. They just couldn't. They struggle as it is. All right, Ron. We've we've talked on some deep <laughs> subjects here, we so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to spin it up a little bit. And I want you to tell us about when you first got hooked up with Will and uh, hunting with Primos. There's got to be a, a story that sticks out in your mind as one you was like, what in the world just happened and just made you laugh to no end? Well, um, I was at my hunting camp near Fort Gibson, Mississippi, and one of my good friends who had that job before me, was his name was Chuck Jones. And Chuck was with Primo's a year, and then he went to Night and Hell. We went to Real Tree, then he ended up at Night and Hell for a long career. And you know, Chuck was going to bring Will Primo's by the camp, and I was supposed to meet him at the camp at nine thirty. Well, I'm three quarters of a mile from camp, and I hadn't heard a turkey gobble all morning, and I know there's turkeys there. It was just a beautiful day, and there's turkeys there. I've heard them all year, so I start walking back to camp. And I had 30 minutes to get there with no big deal. Hit a road. I'm walking down the road. Now, quarter mile from camp, I'm 10 minutes early, and I walk around the curve, and I just couldn't stand it. And I yelped and cut, and a turkey cut me off, and he's 250 yards over there to my left. I looked to the right. That's where Will Primo's going to be. Well, long story short, I didn't meet Wilbur that day. (laughs) 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 I didn't. I met him a few days later, and, and we had, you know, nine years of, of a lot of get togetherness, and it mostly was good. It wasn't all good, but it was mostly good. And, you know, the good thing about those days when, you know, Cuz was there before Chuck, and then Chuck was there before me, and then, you know, none of us really knew what we were doing. But nobody knew how to call BS on it because they didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. So it, you know, it was all new. Well, we had we had Cus Strickland on, and he talked about some of these uh, hotels. I guess you guys would go maybe travel to at times, and uh, I guess it was you with them, and they were talk, talking about getting in a um, debate to see who could get the cheapest hotel. Were you involved in any of that? No, sir. That was a management decision. <laughs> oh, I got you. I got you. I got you. What about carrying those big old cameras around back in in '88? I guess that was real light equipment, wasn't it? Well, in '88, it was. It wasn't too bad. Uh, Cuz the first camera Cuz coded, he proved that 
nobody wanted to do that. <laughs> so uh, we figured out, I, I had bought a Panasonic 460 SVHS camera. And we figured out that we could capture that stuff and move around a lot better. We didn't have an umbilical cord and all that stuff to drag around. And, and it weighed about a third of what the one Cuz toted for a year. But Cuz never toted another one of them either after that. <laughs> but as we progressed, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And for seven or eight years, I mean, I was toting 40 pounds of, of gear. And everybody else was when we went to Beta King. I am, I am totally amazed and severely pissed that they didn't have this stuff when I was doing it because I probably could still be doing it. Can't do it now. Oh, my goodness. And, and that camera equipment back then, it may not have been as big, but y'all were running VHS, so y'all had to splice that film still, right? What we did, we learned that you could take SVHS and take it into the edit suite to the edit studio. We didn't do that in-house then. It was all linear. And um, you could, we could dub it to beta ST, and it, it didn't lose anything. It gained just a little. But, you know, compared to today, people ask me the difference in the video we shot then and the video they shoot now. Here's the way I analyze that. I could tote 40 pounds of gear, and you put the video that I shot on a screen of a TV that we look at now, it would take up about a fourth of it. And you can take a half-pound camera now and put it on a HD television, and it would be hanging out the sides of it. <laughs> That's right. Because it's that much bigger. So many more pictures in it. Tell us some of the stories, uh, Ron, about, I mean, you've hunted with, like you said earlier before the show, you've hunted with Tom Kelly. How was that experience? Uh, it, I was awestruck. Um, Colonel Kelly, uh, Jim Cassida, who's a, a longtime friend of mine and a mentor of mine in my writing career, um, edited my book and Jim dubbed Tom Kelly the Port Laureate of Turkey Hunting. And my experience with Tom this year was he was every bit it's not the first time I've been around him, the first time I've interviewed him, but it's the first time I shared three days in camp where it was, you know, we just sat down and we talked. And and Tom was is ninety four. So he wasn't the Tom I talked to 10 years ago, but what you can't take away from, from Tom Kelly, he still had that twinkle in his eye and that urge and passion to go, and he was happy just to be there. And that's a lot of what's missing, guys. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be you work for it and you earn your rewards. And Tom... Is very adamant about that. Yeah, I think that's a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people like we've we've recently had these conversations. I had them uh, with Cody this year when I took a bird, and and then when I went out of state this year and took a bird, I sat down with my buddy and I said, you know, I said I think um, bringing light to me. I used to be the type of guy that would just shoot a bird and and run out, and um, 
that would be it. Go back, take a picture or two, and be done with it. And now, you know, and, and I've got to um, give him a lot of credit with, with Dave Owens is, you know, him sitting there taking the time and reflect on what happened and talk about it. And, and I find myself doing that now. And, and now the more I do it, I'm like, you know what, I really enjoy this. That's You know, I took this thing's life, and I need to sit here and enjoy it and take it all in because one day I won't be able to do that. So – um, and I know I've said that time and time again, but I think people need to realize instead of just going out there shooting one and throwing it back in the truck and taking off, you need to embrace that a little bit more. You know, you mentioned Dave Owens. I I didn't know Dave Owens from Adam until about uh, this time, maybe in April of last year. I didn't follow Dave. I didn't, I didn't have time. I, I just, I'm not one of those YouTuber guys. I just, I, I am now to an extent, but I wasn't then. And um, somebody convinced me that I needed to talk to him. And it took me a couple of phone calls and a lot of time in between. And you cannot say enough about a guy like Dave. I can't. Dave is, you know, there's a lot of misperception about, you know, there's, a lot of people call them influencers, and they are. They're very influential turkey hunters, rightfully so. But if everybody had the passion for turkeys that Dave Owens does and is willing to put skin in the game to, to fix it like Dave Owens is, we wouldn't be in this position right now. Yeah, and I, and I think to speak, not really speak for him, but I've also heard him say that you know, it took a wake-up call for him several years ago to realize that he wasn't giving back. And I think with outlets like his or outlets like these podcasts, it makes us step back and realize, hey, we are that guy doing that. We are that guy running there and, and killing that turkey and getting out of there and not giving back. So um, I think that's one good thing about technology, going back to that from earlier. Well, we, the technology we, we've been talking about is, is hunting stuff. That's right. But our reach is so much greater now. I mean, I, the phone that I'm talking to you on has more computer ability than the first man that landed on the moon. Um, we can reach thousands of people with just a simple little post. That's right. So I, I just wish that people would Think about what they post, and you know this to me. I'm like I say, I'm an old fart, guys. I'm, at, I'm, I'm, I've been there and done most of it. I've done all of it. I really want to do, but think about the people who don't know what you know, and what they perceive by things you put out there. Um, it's, it's actually dangerous sometimes, you know, to, for the person who does it. We've all seen people get melted down by posting something that shouldn't have come out, or and then when once you get under that that eight ball, you don't get out from under it real easy. Yeah, and I think that's the the problem with today's society. In a little bit, the most controversial of topics will get the most attention because they're the ones that get talked about the most, as opposed to being the good things that get posted out there. They could be the ones that be the shining light, and I, I, that's the that's the one thing I hate about social media more than anything. 
the negative stuff gets the most attention. Yeah, well, it's pretty pretty crazy world we live in. I just think that that turkey hunters as a whole are pretty level-headed people. And I think the vast majority of them care about the resource, and the resource is a bird. And if we figure out what this bird needs, I think you're going to see a, a bigger push toward better habitat management, better predator control. When we figure out what the problem is, I think you're going to be amazed at how many people will buy into it and say, let's fix it. And, you know, I know I am. Today, I was out walking greenfields, flagging to where I'm going to mow pole plains. Not this week, but next week. You know, I'm going to walk them again. Then I'm going to drive my tractor through there. And, you know, they're up over knee high now. And the clovers are getting kind of overpowered by the ryegrass and stuff like that. Well, that little poke, there's all kinds of living stuff out there in bugs. But he can't get there. So I'll go through there. I do it every year. And I make sure there's not a hen in that one width mowing lane. And I go over about 30 yards and I do another one. And then I'll do two crossways. And then when I get that down to the dirt, I take a, a disc and I make like three or four little dusting places. And they'll be using it. Just little common sense things that we can do on your own property. Um, and there's a ton of them. I got a video today of a hen with nine little posts that look like little bumblebees running behind her. And it's three miles from here. And so they hatched. And, and that's the key. The key is recruitment. And we got to learn how to recruit more than we take. Explain that, what you just went through, Ron. And I think there may be uh, people that don't understand it because um, that's the first time I've ever heard of anybody doing that. You, you called it pole, pole lanes. Pole lanes. So well, we, when you think about it, say a one-acre greenfield. Okay. And everybody's got, you know, not everybody, but people who do. By now, here in Alabama, the, the clover's up. It's you know, it's finishing the bloom unless you do Uchi and stuff like that. And then you got, but the, the cereal grains get up above it and it gets to be a thick maze. Well, mama can go through there, but she, the little poles can't maneuver with all that. It's just like bahia grass or anything else. So if you, if you, I urge you to be very careful and make sure you're not running over a nest doing it. But it's kind of critical to do it at a peak time when these poles are hatching because they depend on, on bugs for the first 12, 14 days. they got to have them to survive. Well, all these bugs live out in there. So you take your, your bush hog, you mow it down real close to the ground. Now mama can lead them down a clean lane, and they can pick bugs off left and right, and an avial predator flies over. They just duck in the stuff, and they're good to go instead of just being able to walk around the edges. It just it just opens up your field to to better forage for your for your little baby for hope. That's a that's a great idea. Yeah, oh absolutely I mean, because everybody's usually usually anywhere you hunt, 
especially here in Georgia, if you've got a food plot that's, you know, a half acre, you got a field somewhere, that's a great idea to do. But again, like you said, you got to be careful. You got to go in there and walk the property before you just take off with a bush hog. You could do that in your you backyard. Can just, you can just drive your tractor down and back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I heard Coach Strickland talk about the other day when he, when he gets ready to bush hog one of his fields, he takes his side by side and he kind of runs through just to make sure there's no baby deer or anything like that in there. So great idea. And we was actually talking about doing that on our property yesterday. So that's, um, so, so there's more to it than that. Once, once you do that, uh, we, we're having a major deal with feral hogs here. Um, that's a whole nother podcast, but, um, <laughs> right. In the last 12 years, we have just been, we, we kind of got on the, on the good side of it now where we got it back under control. But for four or five years, it was just totally out of control. But if you don't mow it down too soon, those cereal grains mature, then you can go in there and mow down a strip and there'd be wheat on the ground and clover seed and all this stuff. And you could make that food plot, you know, more beneficial to, to your turkeys even on up into July. That's, and don't forget those, go in and, and get some bare dirt with a disc or something. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they'll start taking advantage of it as a dusting spot. And little bitty poles of dust when they're, you know, ditties, they'll be out there dusting just like mom. So, real quick, just and we don't have to get into it because you said this for another podcast, are feral hogs detrimental to the poults they're detrimental to all wildlife and i'll i'll give you one example with our white-tailed deer here we own a small farm it's 210 acres but it's manicured for for my wife Tessa's photography and we don't shoot turkeys here we shoot a buck every once in a while but we shoot trespassers I mean, really, it's a bucket. It, it, it's not here all the time. Oh, you mean, oh, we was thinking like a real trespasser. <laughs> yeah, he's a trespasser. Yeah. He's a trespasser. We've never seen him, and if he beats our qualifications, that's a deer we hunt. The hot that's a good way to look at it. That's a good way to look at it, yeah. These deer are very accustomed to us, and there's not a lot of pressure on either side of us, and we're just blessed that way. But Tess makes her living with a camera, so – She's got to have subjects. So, you know, these deer get killed. They just don't get killed here. Um, but, for instance, five years ago, a four-and-a-half-year-old buck here would average 210 pounds. We have not killed a 200-pound deer here in three years. And it's the same stuff. It's just we can't plant the same. We can't plant corn. We can't plant chufa. Our cereal grain, our wheat heads and stuff, the hogs, we're getting all that. So uh, if you've got a hog problem, you need to know one thing. That's Jaeger Pro. And if, if you'll listen to those guys and buy in and get your neighbors to do it, you can get it back under control. We're not catching a sounder a month here now. We're catching a sounder or two a year. So that's a huge difference. Yeah, that's that's a lot of hogs. You said a sounder of how a sounder a month y'all are catching? At least. I wow. guys, we put a trap here. Rod Fingston came here 
uh, I want to say in 2016, 2016 or 17, and it was it was sick. It was sick. We were shooting every night, shooting pigs every night, two or three times a night in cornfields with shotguns and red lights. And I finally said, okay. Call Rod, he came and looked at it. And we put a trap on, on this place and on the neighbor. And in the next four years, we caught 720-something pigs. God almighty. In four years. That's in and, Alabama? Yes, sir. Lord have mercy. Yeah, because usually yeah. how many in a sounder? What, is that about, about 20, 30 hogs or something like that? A sounder is a group of females and their offspring. So it'll be two to three, or it could be a single. I guess they still call that a sounder too. Yeah. But the most we ever called in one drop the gate was 30. That's unreal. <clears throat> That's a lot. But what, that, what they do that most people don't understand, these, these pigs use these creek drainages, and they travel from place to place. And when it rains, they'll come up these smaller drainages like on our farm, and they just they take all the mass off the ground. All the stuff that usually deer and turkeys can scratch through in the winter, one trip of hogs through there in the fall, and it's gone. Wow. It's gone. It changes native vegetation. It's, it's a, in my opinion, feral hogs are the greatest threat to, my, to, not, to, to native wildlife in this country. Hmm. It's a battle. It, it, well, We've talked, you know, liberally about um, the the python yep. epidemic that goes on in Florida. Yep. But th- think about what Florida's facing: invasive iguanas, pythons, and they got wild hogs. Imagine in ten years, if nothing's done, what the turkeys and the deer population are going to face in Florida. They'd be gone. They'd be gone. The natural habitat is destroyed. Yep. And. Props to Texas. Hey, they they've exploring every option they can up into up to and including a poison to try to get rid of them. That's being done on the federal level everywhere right now. They just finished trials here within ten miles of our farm. The federal boys came in here and they're going to have something out within the next year or two, but it won't. It'll never be in my hands. It's it's so toxic and so dangerous that if it's not done properly, they'll administer it themselves. So you'll have to make that case to your, I guess you, your, I don't know, whether it's uh, NRCS to natural resources conservation or whatever. That I get lost in all this alphabet stuff, but they will if they will assess your place and if they think it's worthwhile. They'll come in and administer that poison themselves because what they can't afford to do is give like a redneck like me that <laughs> stuff and go put it out there and it kills coons and everything else. Well, you probably, so, Ron, you're an old school guy. You probably remember the days of Timmet and uh, Strychnine. Oh, yeah. Yep. That stuff was detrimental to anything it touched. For three, for three cycles. No words. If you kill the coon and the coon's dead, a coyote ate it, that coyote's dead, coyote 
was ate by buzzards. That buzzard was dead. Really? For three. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's the bad, bad yeah, stuff Timmy. back in the day with Timmy. That's why it was, it was it was outlawed, probably in the eighties, maybe or even earlier than that. Uh I think it was legal after that because uh, uh, probably you know the late eighties, early nineties. Um, you know, Timmy was was a a chemical that was developed to develop. It was for fruit orchards. And they put it in for cotton farmers. They put it in the as an infer treatment that the plant took up that that insects, I think aphids and something else that, that was detrimental to cotton and detrimental to fruit orchards. Then it would go up in the tree and this critter would eat it, the bug would eat it, and they would die. But right. they never figured out what it was doing to the people eating the cotton, eating the, the oranges or wearing the cotton. They didn't, that didn't come up in those days. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the problem. I, I ate too much of that as a kid. It pulled my brain out. <laughs> oh, man. Ate too much cotton and wore too much orange. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Ron, we got we got a listener question that's been submitted here. So uh, just, just give me a second. We're going to play our shooting you straight segment. You'll hear a little music playing here. Yes, sir. This week's Shooting You Straight, brought to you by land specialist Cal Hardy with Whitetail Properties. If you're looking to buy or sell land in the northwest Georgia area, give our boy Cal a call. 770-296-2163. Day or night. All right, so this question was submitted in by Weldon Nelson. And uh, Weldon wanted to know, while we had Mr. Jolly on, what is the one thing that common people that own land, say 30, 40, 50 acres, can do to help the wild turkey population on their property in your mind, Ron? I think a lot of that depends on the type of habitat, especially your woods. Uh, If it's a pine-dominated property, I would highly recommend control fire on a regular basis. I would also recommend uh, predator control or nest predator control program. And I would also recommend planting something that our little farm is not, it's not the hotel, but it's a restaurant. So we have to try to have something growing here that's attractive to turkeys all the time. Um, and that that comes a lot from that controlled fire I'm talking about because all the native forbs and grasses that come up behind that are, are very, very helpful. And that's my answer to that. Let let me kind of spin off that real quick, Ron, because I seen a I seen this video that an older gentleman made, I believe he's from Louisiana on social media. And he was talking about the number one thing wrong with the turkey right now that he thought in his mind was the way logging companies log nowadays. And they let this undergrowth come up from spraying or um, the granules that they dump out of a helicopter or a plane, which I've seen at hunting property around here. And they don't do any um, fires. Do you think that is an issue? Does that make sense? I think uh, companies manage for timber. They don't care as much about wild turkeys as we do. Um, 
I don't mean that to be critical. That's just kind of the uh, the way we live in, and that's what, what do we call that. What is that word for that? Uh, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. But guys got to make a living. Those timber guys make their living by spending as little as they can and growing as much as they can and selling it as for as much as they can. So they've got ways figured out. But I saw that video as well. He rolled his camera over to this shear skitter. That's correct. Right? That's right. Yeah, I that's did say, yep, that's the one I saw too. Yeah, everybody saw that. That was um I have a big problem with somebody saying, Here's your problem, this is it. There you go. Because it's not just it. Right. Yep. I can take you to places that's never had a shear skeeter run through it and it had been one within 10 miles of there and they don't have turkeys like they used to. Now, and on that timber company land that you're talking about where they don't worry about keeping the undergrowth down and all that because they think it wade right through there and get what they want and the seedlings that are coming along, it doesn't get those and now they got a head start on the next year's crop or the next cut, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be a problem, but that is not what it was portrayed. In my opinion, that is not the number one, the sole issue that's wrong with wild turkeys in the southeast, as he portrayed it. But that goes right back to what we just talked about, Nick. It's a negative impact on someone else. So he made that a viral post, and, and we've all seen that post, just mm-hmm. like we do the others. What would be the impact if we could get one of these good posts to do something just like Ron just said about the burns or something else, if we could get one of those to go viral instead of one of these negative you know, conversations. Are you telling Ron to start a TikTok? I wish he would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cuz Strickland started a TikTok. Yeah, Cuz has got one. So. <laughs> well, Cuz is a little more advanced in his career than I am. Cuz has been doing this a little bit longer than I have. Uh, don't say chef short, Ron. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling you, Cuz is you know, he's on top of it. I, I am not a great social media person. I don't, I don't have time. I don't. I wear too many hats. Um, but because his influence is always positive, he's, he's right on on everything he does. As far as I know, I just don't have time to do that. I don't have time. I don't have. I spend my spare time working on my dirt and trying to make it the best it can be for the critters that, that God asked me to take care of. So, and that's what I challenge everybody to do. You know, this stuff is not cheap. It, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money to manage that 40 acres, you know? So are you willing to do it? It depends on how bad you want turkeys, but what you can do if you are, and you can convince your neighbor who's got 40 and the next neighbor who's got 40, then you can really start making a difference. That's right. That's right. I got one more question I want to ask before we wrap it up here towards the end, Ron. But I recently heard on another podcast, and it wasn't even a hunting podcast, but they were talking about, and you may not even know this answer, but they were talking about how cell phones, they believe, are interfering with the way bees communicate and the way they fly, I guess, whatever. Do you think there's been any research done for that for turkeys in any way? I know that may sound 
Extravagant. Yeah. Extravagant. Yeah, but deep. Is there that many waves or whatever you want to call it going through the air that it could be affecting the turkey's gobbling ability um, or anything like that? (laughs) It affects me. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, And if that originated from a bee deal, we have few beehives, Tess and I take care of and I have a cell phone in my pocket and the bastard still has to stay me. So, you know, they had not lost their ability to hone in on me, but I, I think that's far-fetched. I, you know, I know it's not the case on this place. Yeah. Cell service sucks here. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, just, uh, I didn't know if it would be certain areas because, you know, you keep hearing people say, well, the they gobble, they're not gobbling like they, I've heard them. Even, even cuz, just like you said, somebody's been around the game a long time. And he always makes the comment, you know, I just think it's God's way of telling the turkey, hey, we, we need to we need to slow down right here and, and be quiet for a while. And and that may be the case, but you know, just it was just a question I thought I'd ask. <laughs> you well, re- let me let me let me expand on that a little bit. Okay. This this stuff with quiet turkeys is nothing new. I mean turkeys are turkeys and they do what they do because they can do it. It's like women. They do what they do because they can. <laughs> Amen. And, <laughs> Amen. Second I mean, time. And God bless them. I mean, look at the spell they both, you know. <laughs> they both put on us. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's not like it's not like you're in control. You just think you are. That's right. And you're not in control when you're turkey hunt. That's right. I mean, they do what they do because they don't they don't live in the world we live in. They're, they're every day. A wild turkey, in my opinion, wakes up. He wakes up hungry, and he wakes up trying to keep from getting eaten or shot. Yeah, and that's and or trying to breathe him or be bred, and that's it. I mean, he's not worried about his bank account. He's not worried about his data service or <laughs> how much data he's got left. I, I don't think that. I don't think that's true. You you say you raise bees, Ron? We we've had up to eight hives, and we're back down to three, and I'm hoping for two. Have you? Uh, so y'all give them sugar water when they're starting out? We call our bug. We call our bees naturally. We call all all our hives are from swarms. Okay, and we do very little sugar water. We just when when we get them in there, they want to be there, and then they're on their own. And then once they establish, we just make sure we need plenty in there for them to make the winter. My my daddy so we would need at least we need we need a, at least a super, or sometimes even two supers, for them to get through the winter. My, we're my, not commercial. We're we're just we just like it and like to give it away as gifts. Death likes to be stung, so I have to do it every now and then. <laughs> My dad was a beekeeper when I was growing up, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. He'd put that suit on and go up there and deal with the bees. And I, I said, I'm going to help you with your bees, Dad. And he said, okay. He said, uh, and I'll never forget this. It was in the spring. He said, uh, I got some new hives up there. And he was working late, and he said, you go up there and put that sugar water on, on them bees. I said, okay, I'll be fine. He said, just take that old one off and stick the new one on. Well, I had two jars under my right arm, and I took that first one off. And when I did, 
three jars went down through the woods because I got the absolute hell stung out of me when I pulled that cap <laughs> off. They eat my tail alive. And so at uh, 11 years old, my beekeeping career went out the window, and I ain't turned back and looked at it since. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, uh, I will tell you this. I think we have quite a few fruit trees and a couple of oak orchards and different kinds of oak and stuff, but I think our pollination has really been helped by having these bees here and uh, our fruit, our persimmons and pears and plums and all that seems to be better since we've had bees here. They are the lifeline uh, of the world uh, in what they do for it, and people need to take and respect the bee because it is it is something that keeps the world revolving. So, um, Ron, we're uh, we've we've talked over a lot of different topics. We've kind of discussed a lot of different things, but we always like to have somebody when they're on from a foundation such as Turkeys for Tomorrow. Tell us a little bit about what Turkeys for Tomorrow is and, and your involvement with that, if you would. Well. Um, Turkeys for Tomorrow is, everybody knows, it's a nonprofit that was started by, it all started in, in Nashville in, in 2020 when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, when you get my age and you've been down as many pig trails as I've been down, and, and when God puts something in front of you, you kind of learn how, you, you, this time in your life, you kind of learn that if you ignore it, that some bad things coming your way, if you try to follow that, there could be some good things, but there's probably going to be some hard work to, to get the full blessing from it. And so it all started with, uh, we all went out to dinner that night and some of the old primos guys there, Mike Lingo and David Benson and David Carden and, you know, it's about 15 of us. And I hadn't seen a lot of those guys in 20 years and, or more, <laughs> and somebody said, you know what? We might not ought to wait another 20 years to do this. Let's get together soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we got together not far from our home and at a place called White Oak Plantation, and everybody, we talked about it at the table at night, and one of the main things is what's going on with the turkeys where you live. And I don't, I don't, I could talk about this too long. So we had that meeting. And we decided to try to figure out what we could do. So in February of 2021, we were uh, we were granted our 501c3, and here we are, 15 months later, and we've got projects on the ground in Alabama, and fixing to have a project on the ground in Mississippi, and probably in Kentucky, and possibly Tennessee. We're just trying to figure this out. And we're relying on the people who can do that, and those are the scientists, and we're relying on the hunters to help us pay for it. Because it's, it's, the problem with research is it takes a long time to, to, to do it and make those conclusions. Then you got to implement it. But we got to start somewhere, guys. And that's, that's our whole goal, is just to figure it out. I think that Turkeys tomorrow, for Tomorrow is a collection of like-minded individuals that just want exactly what the name is, Turkeys for Tomorrow. I think so. Um, 
I think it's grown way far beyond that. Um, you know, those like-minded individuals were my friends and colleagues through my career as a producer and a writer and just as, you know, being a turkey hunter. But the grassroots is coming from other turkey hunters who, who care, who either see it where they hunt or don't want to see it where they hunt. So either way, there's a misconception here that this is just in the southeast. This is not all true. And the summer and spring of last year, we did a simple question survey, just like six questions. But the one thing that stood out, and we, we left that up a month, and we had 1,500 replies. The one thing that, that really stuck in my mind was the question, do you think the turkeys in the area you hunt are up 10, 20, 30% or more or down 10, 20, 30% or more? Of those 1,500 people who answered that question, 68% said down 38% or more, and that was from 42 states and two Canadian provinces. So that's it. that tells me that it's been built on since then. I get messages from Massachusetts and Maine and everywhere that this is a legitimate thing. Now, what it is, we don't know, but we're trying to figure it out. And and the good news is the awareness is way up. And when hunters are aware and can unite, we can fix this. We don't have to go back the way it was when I was a kid. We're nowhere near there. So, I just ask everybody to join us and find a level of membership. You can join CSP now and join us and at a level that's comfortable to you. And let's figure this out because it's going to take all of us to do this, guys. There, I would say there's more people now. Even just since we've been doing this podcast, how many people have focused more since we started doing this podcast on what's going on? Then I mean, just I mean, just look at the recent. Georgia law change, you know, yeah. how many, how much has people focused on that? How much have people hunted differently now than they did a year ago or five years ago? And it's, and it's, it's showing itself. And I think you guys are doing a good job. And and I think the only thing I took out of that, I was going to ask, what do you, what, what could we do better as being a podcast, getting out to reaching other folks? But I think the answer was just to get people signed up. Is that correct, Ron? Or is there something else? Uh, that always helps, but but pay attention to what's going on on your dirt. Report it. I mean, the post we did today on our Instagram was be aware. And there's a, a video of two beautiful gobblers strutted up or all colored up, and here's one all humped up, and when he turns his head, his head's black. Now, is that turkey normal? No. So, Report that. The people who only the only your state officials, your state agency can address that. Uh, Preston Pittman called me day before yesterday. I called him. I'm sorry. I said, you, you got a minute? He said, no, I got permission. I got to go kill turkeys dying. And he had to, he had to call the biologist. He had to call his representative. Had to do all these things to get permission to go kill this turkey that his friend saw. He's walking around, walking into trees, heads all swollen up. He's crazy. 
swab will run out of his mouth. Time he got permission to go back there, he couldn't. He couldn't do that. He couldn't find a bird. So, um, there's something going on, and I think some of the things that that are going to be revealed in, in the studies we're doing in Alabama, we 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 topped over over 300 collected carcasses to study from this season in Alabama. We're studying fertility rates. Those carcasses will reveal. Uh, disease, they were uh, several things that are going to come out of that. So if we are able to share that, I think more people would say, wow, that's interesting. Now, it doesn't matter. It's not conclusive until the whole study's over in three years. But those are tidbits that can draw other people into the call. I wonder if a turkey's ever had coronavirus. <laughs> Everybody's had that, don't you know? <laughs> or if they have, does turkeys have to wear a mask? No, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, no. The reason I'm asking is they've done that study on all those deer in Michigan. and They, they had coronavirus for two years. And that was everybody and his brother killed them with a shotgun. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have to go to work. That's, hey, that's, that's, that's very true. true. That's why the turkey numbers are down here this that's year. Very, that's very no, true, it's too. Not. No. It's not. But, I mean, you can think about that. I know people who hunt public land religiously in 15 or 20 states. In 2021, not only could they not find a turkey, they couldn't find a place to park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because people weren't working. That's right. I mean, common sense people were killing and were taking right now more than we're growing. And I think Dr. Lashley says it best. You got to make them. So you can take them. That's right. Y'all go sleep? No. <laughs> no, we lost you there for a second, I think, Ron. It just went silent for us, so sorry about that. Um, I'm waiting for y'all. I, I gave you the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I think the biggest thing that anybody can take out of tonight's show is a relatable common man is trying to make a difference just like we are. And if you hadn't already, you need to go over and look at turkeys for tomorrow and see what they're doing because I'm not a turkey hunter, Ron. You you don't know that about me. You don't know me from Adam, but I've slowly transitioned myself into being more of a, a lover of the spring this year just by getting out there and by having conversations with, with men like you. I've spent more time in the woods this year than I ever have, and the opportunity to do that, I, I wish I hadn't waited so long in my life to do that because it is a it is a, a special thing, just like you said. If a fella can't watch a turkey fly down in a field and watch it strut around and be happy on those mornings, that's there's something wrong with him. I, I'm just glad there ain't something wrong with me, Nick. I, he called me out at the beginning <laughs> of the show and didn't even know it. <laughs> Well, I, I tell you what, guys, y'all are hoot. I need to, y'all need to get in touch with Miss Seth. Y'all don't really know what turkey to do. Y'all need to talk to her sometime. Who is that? My wife, wow. Seth. Oh, oh, okay. Just because the footage that she puts on, and the photos she shoots. So yeah. This woman lives with turkeys. She's she lives with them. Well, we would love to. We would love the opportunity to speak with her because I'm sure if uh, if she's Put up with you for this long, she'd put up with us for at least an hour, Kate. She <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, he may be a little over y'all's head on stuff, but she'll get you there. <laughs> Drag us along like a boat anchor. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, before we before we wind this thing up, we've, we've got a few questions we always ask at the end of the show. And I, I think the one that's kind of stuck out in my mind, Ron, through your journey in the outdoors, and it doesn't necessarily have to be turkey hunting or, or anything that, that sticks out, what keeps you going during the day? What's that one driving factor for you that just keeps you striving to do more and, and keep you moving forward in your day-to-day life? That's very easy. Outside. One word. I'm happy outside. It's easy for me to see all of God's work and an opportunity to try to, to help that for the wildlife that lives here. Tess and I do that. That's That's what we do. That's what makes us happy. That's what makes us get up every day and, and do what we do. That's awesome. Ron, what are you most thankful for? I am thankful for my family, my God, and this country, and the ability to speak my mind and to, to move freely and just you know live my life free. Amen to that. Ron, what is the strangest thing that you've ever seen outdoors in the woods that wasn't supposed to be there? Oh my goodness! I was thinking about that. There's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> well, I us- guess. I guess the strangest thing I've ever seen outside in the woods that wasn't supposed to be there was probably. Hmm, Come back to that one. Let me think on that one. <laughs> well, that's, that's, about, that's about the end of it, Ron. We'll have to get you on the next episode on that one. <laughs> okay. And let me let me state this. Have you ever seen um, a beaver, you know, cut down the tree and it fall the wrong way? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's no Sounds wrong like... way for a beaver. Oh, that, that's, that's true. I ain't never thought about that. <laughs> no wrong way. There's a hard way and an easy way, but he gets stopped anyway. You go. Oh my goodness, Ron. We got to uh, we got to circle up with you and and hopefully one of these days sit down and and have a cup of coffee and uh, and have a good conversation because I you, think we could have a time. That would be great, guys. I certainly appreciate you and having us on. And uh, if we can help y'all in any way, please let us know and. Check us out at turkishtomorrow.org. Sounds good, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yes, sir. Have a great day. We'll talk soon, Ron. See you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That was Ron Jolly, Turkeys for Tomorrow, Memories of the Spring author, NWTF, Hall of Famer, and – Buddy, I tell you what, you better not get cross with Ron because I guarantee you he can tell you what his mind thinks. And he's a staunch believer of what he believes. He's a staunch. I don't even know how to put that. He's a staunch. He just believes what he believes. And he's scared to speak his mind. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that keeps. Shut up, Cody. Cody's over laughing at us. How many times are we going to pause in that episode? (laughs) Uh, That's okay. I don't even know. I don't. We're trying to collect our thoughts. I'll tell you what. Honestly, right out of the gate, I think what happened, I'll speak for myself here. He hit us with that story about his dad, and it kind of knocked my socks off right right off the rip. Yeah, I mean, but I wanted to ask him, and, and maybe in the future we can. I wanted to, to to ask the simple question: Was it worth it? A 
That's the one thing that stuck out in my head. Was it worth it? And and I honestly believe he answered yeah, it through, so. his, through his answers. Yeah, I think you. I think he got that answer with that last shotgun shell, and I think that was, I think it was worth it because he's 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 done better for getting out for what he's doing. Yeah, and making better ways and showing better ways and and giving that strong opinion. He's not just. He's not just in the same boat with everybody else, or I'm not. I shouldn't say everybody else, but he's not just a yes man. Yeah, he knows that's for sure. He and, definitely and he gives that. you his opinion, and and we need to be like that. We can talk through stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can have an argument and not believe the same way, but you can kind of understand where they're coming from on stuff. Yep, that's doesn't right. necessarily have to change your mind on stuff. I, I enjoyed that one. Fun one. Fun yeah. one. What a way to wrap shout out up. to turkeys for tomorrow. Shout out for Chase getting this set up too. So yep. Shout out to all the guys over at Turkeys for tomorrow. I mean, everyone that we've spoken with, going back to Jim. I mean, Jim, right out, you know, right off the rip, he's been somebody that we've been able to communicate with, and we got to circle up and do one with him on maybe a duck hunting trip. <laughs> we can do some duck hunting because that's something we don't know nothing about. Let's go. Let's, Let's go. try it one time. Let's try it one time. Let's I got to go. go. I got to go. Hey, thanks for everybody for tuning in to another edition of Talk About It Outdoors. It's been a fun-filled night. Uh, I don't know that we've ever done – as much fun as we've had in, in one evening and went all the way across the country. If you hadn't listened back to the episodes that are uh, dropping, please do go over to YouTube, check that stuff out. And if you haven't already, please jump over and see the KT Team Knife fundraiser that we're doing. RP Scritchfield was kind enough to make us an amazing knife to give away for the KT Team. 100% of the proceeds there will be donated back to them. They're a disabled group out of South Georgia that take disabled and uh, – well, medically challenged individuals, whether it be children, men, women, whatever, and get them back in the outdoors and give them an opportunity to pursue their passion. So check them out, www.ktteam.org. You want to learn more about Turkeys for Tomorrow, turkeysfortomorrow.org. You want to watch a little YouTube video of Talk About It Outdoors, you can search it there under that. So for everyone here at Talk About It Outdoors, we want to thank you for coming and being with us tonight. And remember, smile as you go, but don't forget, mount the memories. Building the foundation of your life starts at the base, and the stronger it is, the better. Talk About It Outdoors is proud of our strong partnership with United Concrete and Paving and the foundation of support they provide. Whether your new home being built needs concrete work or that driveway you're tired of beating all the bearings from your pickup needs a paving, Michael and his team can provide any residential or commercial project support you might need from the ground up. If you're tired of tripping over that unsettled patio slab or a future shop build needs a smooth start, United Concrete and Paving can get you going when you need it most. Give them a call at 404-831-3036 and make sure you tell them them TAI boys are where you heard it first. A few years back, When an overbearing and overgrown backyard became an eyesore, I looked for a solution to resolve. LRS Land Services created a stunning and complete transformation turnkey at an affordable price with their mulching services. Not limited to mulching, LRS can provide turnkey grading and clearing, maintenance, right-of-way clearing, and even development for any and all forestry needs. With an innovative outlook on what is best for your land and a completely different approach than others, LRS can transform your overgrown eyesore into a beautiful landscape of your dreams. Give them a call at 404-889-1105 
or check their work out on Facebook at LRS Land Services. Logan and his team are ready to make your land brand new again. Are you in need of a decluttering? Barn or garage slap full of stuff you just don't need? Or is your construction site needing a dumpster? Give our buddy Tony at Georgia Junk and Dumpster Rental a call. With services ranging from junk removal to roll-offs, Georgia Junk is here to help with any and all removal needs. If it's time to get that parking spot back or the boat needs a place inside, Tony and his team can surely assist. Servicing Cherokee, Cobb, Bartow, and surrounding counties, give them a call at 404-406-3501 or check them out on Facebook at Georgia Junk. Clean up the yard in short order with Georgia Junk. Georgia Junk. 